Come to bed with me, she said. Not just once, but again and again. She was the wife of an important army officer, Potiphar by name. And he, Joseph by name, was a slave. A slave who had risen in importance so that now he was in charge of his whole master's business, but nonetheless a slave. And a well-built and handsome slave. Which is why she said to him day after day, come to bed with me. Seemed like an offer he couldn't refuse. But he did again and again. Until one day, finding himself alone with her in the house, faced with her amorous advances, he chose to run, leaving his cloak in her hands. And the result of his principal stand, he was falsely accused of rape, thrown into prison for an indefinite term with no right of appeal and no certainty that he would ever get out again. So, why did he turn her down? Did he not fancy her? Or was he worried about the risk of discovery, the consequences that might follow? If so, then was his refusal a bad error of judgment? A failure to anticipate the spite of a woman spurned? What was the reason for his refusal? Well, the Bible, which records this story in the book of Genesis, chapter 39, gives us the reason why he refused her invitation to come to bed with me. Listen carefully. This is what it says. But he refused. With me in charge, he told her, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house. Everything he owns is entrusted to my care. No one is greater in this house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except you because you are his wife. Now, here's his reason. How, then, could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? The young slave, Joseph, knew that sleeping with someone else's wife was, at the bottom line, a sin against God. Some 450 years later, what was written on his heart by God was written in stone by God when he gave his laws to the people of Israel. The descendants of Joseph the slave, when they were finally rescued from their slave status in Egypt and embarked on a journey to a promised land. The laws that God gave to his people begin as follows. And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. And the seventh of what became known as the Ten Commandments states simply and starkly, you shall not commit adultery. Exodus 20 verse 14. My dictionary defines adultery as voluntary sexual intercourse between a man or a woman and a partner other than a legal spouse. Adultery can only be defined in relation to marriage, the marriage of two people into which a third party enters. 
Mrs. Potiphar was married to Mr. Potiphar, and Joseph, had he agreed, would have been the third party who entered that relationship, even though he wasn't married. Which is why those of you who have already switched off at this point saying, I'm not married, I have no intention of ever getting married, need to wake up again at this point, because you could be the third party in an adulterous relationship. And if you're sitting there saying, not me, never, then you certainly need to wake up at this point. But what I want to emphasise is what the dictionary does not include and what most people ignore. That there is another person in this equation whose involvement makes adultery a far more serious matter. Many generations later, after Moses had received the Ten Commandments, Jesus, the Son of God, issued a warning to those who break the marriage bond by adultery when he said, What God has joined together, let not man separate. I've taken many weddings in this church. And after pronouncing this man and woman, husband and wife, I then say, what God has joined together, let not man separate. Marriage is the joining together of two people by God. And adultery separates, or literally, tears apart what God has put together. Hence the title I've chosen for today's message, What God Has Joined Together. Now, we don't have time this morning to deal with a complex and contentious subject of divorce. There are tapes in our library. You can download from the internet on the subject if you're interested in what the Bible says about that. Rather today, I want, in the time that we have together, to look at the subject of adultery, and I simply want to highlight four words connected with adultery. Here's the first one. Joined. Marriage is not a human invention, but as Jesus reminded his hearers, who should have known better, marriage is a divine institution. Jesus states to them that marriage was given to human beings, he actually says, at the beginning. In other words, right back at the beginning of human history, when God created the world, when he finally created the crown of creation, the man and the woman. He gave them marriage. Theologians call it, if you're interested in theological language, theologians call it a creation ordinance. It's foundational, therefore, to all people and societies. This was given before God chose his people Israel. It is not a particularly Jewish institution or a Christian one. It is a creation institution. It applies to all people in all societies. In marriage, a man and a woman, and so-called gay marriage in biblical terms is a contradiction in terms, a man and a woman become one flesh. Genesis 2.24, quoted by Jesus, Matthew 19. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. Male and female, one flesh. Now, in marriage, that one flesh physical union is expressed in sexual union, the joining together of two bodies. 
But it is more than that. There is a much deeper level of intimacy that the physical consummation is only symbolic of or expressive of. You see, human beings alone, out of all creation, created in the image of God, possess the capacity to communicate and have a relationship with each other at the deepest possible and most intimate level possible. And with God. In in fact, incredibly, the New Testament holds such a high view of marriage that the Apostle Paul, writing to the Christians in Ephesus, trying to explain to them what what it means for Christ to love his church and belong to be and committed to his church in relationship, compares that relationship to the marriage relationship. It is the most intimate relationship. And marriage then is a marriage union, is God's plan and it is God's doing. When two people come together, it is God who joins them together. Now, if this is the case, there are two important implications that follow from this. Let me state them both together and then try and explain what I mean. The two important implications are this. The importance of the body and the danger of sexual immorality. Uh, Through the influence of Greek philosophy, there was a commonly held view in the first century, one which is still held in some Christian circles today, that the body is inherently evil. And so everything associated with the body, particularly sex and sexual activity, is bad. Others went even further and said that everything connected with your body is just to do with the physical and what really matters is the spiritual. So, because it's the spiritual that matters, what you do with your body doesn't really matter at all. It has no bearing on your spiritual health. In the Greek city of Corinth in the first century, a city famous for sexual license, there were a group of Christians there and some of them had taken on board this kind of philosophy and teaching. And the Apostle Paul challenges them head on. Very interesting what he says. He says, even a casual or commercial sexual encounter involves that deep intimacy of two people becoming one. Listen to 1 Corinthians 6.16. He says, do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? You say, hang on a minute. But then he quotes Genesis 2.24. For it is said the two will become one flesh. And he goes on therefore to warn them about the danger and it warns us if we are followers of Christ the danger of sexual immorality. 1 Corinthians 6, 18-20 He says, flee from sexual immorality all of the sins a man commits are outside his body but he who sins sexually sins against his, ho- his own body. Now, this is, this is dynamic teaching. Listen carefully if you're a Christian. Do you not know that your body your body It's not saying your spirit. Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you've received from God. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, honour God with your body. So, if the Christian's body, if I'm a Christian, if the Holy Spirit is living within me, residing in this temple, he's using Jewish imagery. This is not Solomon's temple, it is your temple, your body, and God comes to reside within you by his spirit, then what you do with this temple is very important. Make sure you don't desecrate it. And while there are still 
And were those who think the body is unimportant and focus on the spirit, there are many today who think just the opposite. They think the body is all there is, and sex only involves the body. It's just like satisfying a physical desire, like eating. It's nothing more. But the body and the spirit are closely connected. And sexual immorality grieves the Holy Spirit and it damages your spiritual health. Instead, he says, you're to honour body, honour God with your bodies and therefore sex, which is a gift from God, sexual expression, is a gift from God which needs to be handled carefully in the place where God has put it. Within the commitment of marriage, in the shared love of a husband and wife the sanctity of sex and we need to follow the maker's instructions now you need to see that background to understand what marriage is before we turn sadly to what adultery is for adultery is the tearing apart of what God joins together in marriage so here's a second word separated when, when God joins two people together in marriage He forms a bond that is stronger than the strongest superglue. When the first superglues came out, certain malicious people used to stick them in certain places. And if you touch them, and I won't go into graphic detail because some of you may remember the stories, it was not only painful, but to get freed from it was almost impossible. You had to go to hospital. And you couldn't remove whatever you were stuck to without damage to certain parts of your anatomy. I believe they had to actually weaken the formula because of the dangers that this created and the extra work for all the doctors and hospitals. However, the damage caused by adultery goes far deeper. And the scars are not physical scars, they're emotional, spiritual scars that tear people apart. See, if God joins things together, then to tear them apart creates enormous damage. So let me briefly survey the damage. First, most obvious damage is to husbands and wives. Uh, The the, the idea that you can have a pain-free separation is a myth. In his book on the Ten Commandments 10, uh, J. John comments, marriage is a whole web of links of intimate giving and sharing between a man and a woman. And with the act of adultery, all these bonds are severed. Adultery smashes the deepest and most intimate levels of trust, shatters the covenant promises, breaks down the walls of privacy and exclusivity that protect the heart of marriage. It is, in short, an abomination. Now, if you've ever gone through this, and I'm aware, I know there are people here this morning who've suffered that. You, I don't, you don't need me to tell you that. The person to you've entrusted yourself on the most deep level, it just tears you apart. And the damage then extends to children and to grandparents. More and more children experience the trauma of broken homes that affects them, not only them, it affects people like grandparents. So you find that grandparents have limited or no access to their grandchildren. The whole structure begins to break down. It affects the family. Give a thought why do less and less people want to get married today? Because more and more people have grown up in homes where the marriage of their parents has been torn apart and they don't want to risk the same thing happening to them. Would you drive a car if it had a one in three chance of crashing? They ask. So they settle instead for living together as though that's some kind of solution. That provides even less security 
when I speak to people who live together, I understand. I understand the challenges of it. Believe me. I don't live in an ivory tower. But I say to people who live together, do you ever plan to get married? Usually the woman says, yes, I hope so. And the man says, mm, maybe. Not always. I have to tell you, if you live together, statistically, if you get married afterwards, you have twice as much chance of your marriage breaking down than if you don't beforehand. And if you just continue, we live in a society of what's called serial polygamy. Because you move from one relationship to another, you live with someone, and then you separate. You just tear you apart. And so two wounded people go their way, and they link up with two more people, and you get more wounded people. Can you believe we're living in a wounded society? The widest damage is to society itself. No society in human history has survived long without the building block of the family as its foundation. If this is God's design for society, if this is what God planned in the beginning, we shouldn't be surprised by it. And we can only begin to estimate the costs as we survey the damage. There, are, there is literal cost, financial cost. That involves not only just divorce settlements. Have you ever worked out why there's a shortage of housing these days? Because there are lots more people separating. And when two people separate, you need two houses instead of one. There are physical costs. You don't need again for me to remind you the increase in adultery and related sexual promiscuity has led to a frightening spread of sexual diseases in Scotland particularly and in the rest of Britain. Not just things like AIDS. And even where there may not be physical effects, there are emotional scars that never heal. Adultery is this terrible betrayal and it hurts and you carry it on into the next relationship or you never have another relationship because you never trust anyone again. But I want to tell you the most damaging effect of all is the spiritual effect, the effect on your spiritual health. You'll not find this in any government report. A couple of years ago the police reported that around a hundred swans in an area east of London had gone missing and may have, I quote, may have been used for food by Eastern European illegal immigrants. And there was a public outcry. Not just because there were swans, after all we eat ducks and geese, but because swans are a protected species which under an ancient charter, every swan in Britain, if you're an overseas student you need to take notice here, these birds all belong to the Queen. And anyone killing or injuring a swan faces a £5,000 fine or six months in prison. Just be thankful, in the olden days, you got seven years' transportation. And I'm sure that those responsible didn't realise. Imagine you come from another country and there's this big, fat, white bird. You think, wow, great. You know. <laughs> Never realised I was offending against the Queen. Now, maybe you didn't know this. But when you commit adultery, you offend God. And that is a very serious matter indeed. And that is why Joseph, when Potiphar's wife said to him, come to bed with me, said, how could I do such a wicked thing and sin against my master? No, he didn't say that. Oh, he knew his master had trusted him. He said, how could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? How did he know that? I've often thought about that. How did, how did Joseph know that? Hadn't got the Ten Commandments. It's 
written in his heart and his conscience. And so, thankfully, let's move on because if the offended party in adultery is God who joined people together and they've been torn apart, then the most important party who can put things back together again is God as well. So, thankfully, I turn to a third word, restored. Let me say something as loudly and clearly as possible, which will be on the screen, I think, in bold letters. Here it is. Adultery is not the unforgivable sin. How can I say that with confidence? I can simply say it because Jesus said it. And that's good enough for me. There's a remarkable story in the Gospel of John. Um, in chapter 8, the Jewish religious leaders brought to Jesus a woman and they said, it was a trick to try and incriminate him, they said to Jesus, Master, we caught this woman in the very act of adultery. If they caught her in the very act of adultery, one has to ask, where was the man that they caught as well? Anyway. And they threw him in front of Jesus and waited to see what Jesus would say. It's a remarkable story. Jesus bent down, didn't say anything, began writing in the ground. No one knows what he was writing. Finally he looked up and he said to him, if anyone is you, the one of you without sin, you, you throw the first stone. Law of Moses, you should stone people who committed adultery. And he carried on bending down. And one by one, from the oldest to the youngest, they all walked out until there's only Jesus left and the woman. So here's the question, what would Jesus say if you've committed adultery this morning? Or you're in an adulterous relationship. And who knows behind the facade what we get up to. What would Jesus say? He would say two things. One, no condemnation. He said to the woman, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, said Jesus. Jesus, the Son of God, offers the cancelling of our debts when we come to him. That's what this communion table is about, bread and wine. That's why he died on the cross. So that your sin can be forgiven. Whatever it is, there is no sin that is beyond God's forgiveness. But Jesus said a second thing, and people often admit this, they say, oh Jesus, he never, he never condemned that woman who committed adultery, so I can live just the way I like. No, he didn't. He said to the woman, Neither do I condemn you. Now, stop sinning. Leave your life of sin. Change your ways. He said no condemnation, but he also said no more sinning. Following Jesus means turning to God for forgiveness from your sin, admitting what you've done, whatever it might be. It might not be adultery. It might be some other sin that God's put his finger on in your life at the moment. It means turning from your sin. It means turning to God and it means changing direction. You head in a new direction. You don't say, oh, well, Jesus didn't condemn me so I can just carry on doing what I was doing. No, Jesus doesn't condemn me. Therefore, I need to live a new life heading in a new direction. And the question is, many of us want forgiveness, but do we want the new direction in life that is necessary if we're to follow Christ? Have we truly repented? 
One of our former assistant pastors, Alistair Begg, has written a book on the Ten Commandments, which I recommend, if you want a good book again to read, all the ones I mentioned I've read myself and I can commend them to you. This is what he says, Even adultery, as wrong and terrible as it is, is not the unforgivable sin. You are not trapped fatalistically in the clutches of sin. God's kindness points you towards the door, mark repentance. Now, Let's say you're in that situation this morning. What about this broken relationship? Will God restore that? Many years ago, must be 20 years or more now, when I first began my pastoral ministry, I was involved with a couple who lived together in a beautiful house with all everything, and it was a, a tempestuous relationship. I usually got called out. Usually these things happen in pastoral work at weekends because during the week the husband's at work and they don't have any time together to fall out. But usually the weekends are a crucial time. And I got a call out to come out. And as I got there, the woman in question, her parents, she was a Christian. He wasn't. The woman in question, her parents' car was in the drive and her parents and she were carrying out all her property out of the house into the car difficult situation it's what's called in pastoral work but trying to bolt the door after the stable, stable door after the horse is bolting whatever and I said what's happening I've had it she said I'm never coming back and we're finished I'm away and they got in the car and they drove away and the man in question wasn't a Christian said to me broke down in tears and he said what shall I do he said if I become a Christian now he said will God bring her back Tricky questions these should get in <laughs> I said, can't promise you that. I said, I don't know. I said, but your biggest problem is not getting your wife back. Your biggest problem is coming to Christ. Because you've offended against God. You need his forgiveness, not hers, first of all. A few weeks later, he finally broke down and said, all right, whether she comes back or not, I will follow Jesus Christ. And I simply want to say to you, that's the bottom line, if you're in that situation. Now, in this case, I'm happy to say that some months later, amazingly, life began to be turned around, they got back together again, uh, and I married them in the sergeant's mess at RAF Liner. That was an interesting occasion. Yeah, coupled together, brought back together. I always remember it, because our final hymn we're going to sing, we sang, And Can It Be? And only the three of us knew it and singing it with three people in a sergeant's message. Interesting exercise. <laughs> now, I cannot promise that God will restore your broken relationships. He may. But he may not. God does not force his will on unwilling people. We live with the consequence of our action. We reap what we sow, and sometimes you can't unscramble a scrambled egg. But what I can promise you is what is most important of all. That is a restored relationship with God. Or if you're not a Christian this morning, that God can bring you to himself and bring you into his family and you can know the forgiveness of your sin. And I simply say to you, that is more important than your broken relationship. Important though that may be, and I don't minimize that. It's no accident that the most common picture the Old Testament prophets used when they were speaking God's word to describe God's relationship with his people Israel was that of marriage. 
And the most common way they described the sin of the people of Israel was, you've committed adultery against the Lord. In fact, they even went further and said, you've prostituted yourselves by following other gods. And again and again, the Old Testament has a wonderful picture of God seeking to woo people back to himself and saying, I love you, come back, welcome back. If you want a good example, the book of Hosea is, is an acted parable of that. We went through it last year, I think, and it's on, in the tape ministry, the story of Hosea the prophet. And the promise of the Lord given through the prophets, here's one through Isaiah, is this. If you're in this situation this morning, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way, the evil man his thoughts, let him turn to the Lord and he will have mercy on him and to our God for he will freely pardon. That's Isaiah 55, 6 and 7. The Apostle John, writing his first letter, reminds us that God has made a way by which our sin, by which every sin, can be cleansed, but you need to confess it. He says the blood of Jesus, God's Son, cleanses from, it's highlighted on the screen, every sin. If we confess our sins, He, God, is faithful and just, and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Now I simply ask you this morning, if you're in this situation, whether it's adultery or whatever sin it may be, God will not and cannot forgive you unless you seek his forgiveness. And it requires confession. Maybe this morning you need to come to this table, maybe for the first time, and say, Jesus, this bread and this wine represent your body and blood, and I thank you that you died on a cross so that I might be forgiven. I want to confess my sin. Maybe you're a Christian and you've fallen into sin and you need to come here again in the same way and say, Lord Jesus, I've committed sin against you. I've broken your laws. Lord, will you forgive me? And all I can say is that God has promised if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanses from every sin. So, joined, separated, restored. Now, because prevention is always better than cure. Finally, protected. Sexual temptation is today, as it was in the ancient world, a serious problem and issue. So, if we are followers of Jesus, we need to be on our guard in this area in particular. Uh, another writer and friend, Peter Lewis from Nottingham, uh, writes in his book on this theme. He says, God gives sex its high and proper place in human life and correspondingly warns of the seriousness of behaviour and attitudes which devalue, exploit or pervert human sexuality. In a society which trivialises and commonly degrades sex, the people of God need to be on their guard and to show a better and wiser way. So, what steps can we take to guard and protect ourselves? Let me suggest Three, which you'll find in the Bible. Here's the first. One, guard your thoughts. Jesus spoke on the subject of adultery in the Ten Commandments, in the Sermon on the Mount, rather, commenting on the Ten Commandments. And he extended the scope of the Seventh Commandment, this commandment, beyond the act to the thought. This is what Jesus said. You've heard that it was said, do not commit adultery, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now that's pretty telling, isn't it? That's beyond the letter of the law. 
Now, this doesn't mean, as people sometimes have actually stupidly said to me, oh, well, if the thought's as bad as the act, I may as well commit the act. That really is stupidity. What it says, though, is that thoughts are important and that thoughts lead to acts. So we need to be ruthless, not only with our thoughts, but what we see. Secondly, guard your eyes. Jesus goes on to say in the same Sermon on the Mount, if your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. Matthew 5.29 Now he didn't mean it literally, he meant it figuratively. Be ruthless with what you look at. Be ruthless with who you look at and how you look at them. It's a challenge as never before today with the rise of images on film and especially with the internet. Reading an article, I think there's a book recently about this, and the person said, Christians need to be told that if necessary, you can get into heaven without having a computer. If your eye offends you, throw it out. If your computer does, throw it out. Or at least put a screen on it to stop it showing you things you don't want to shouldn't see. Job in the Old Testament could say, I've made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully at a girl. And whether or not what we see progresses to what we do, it will affect our spiritual health. So here's a third area you need to guard in. Guard your thoughts, guard your eyes, guard your heart. Our former pastor, Derek Prime, said, don't let your heart follow your eyes. The wise writer of Proverbs counsels his son. Above all else, he says, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. Your heart is not just your emotions. Your emotions are an expression of your heart. Jesus said, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. What is it that you most desire in life? You see, some of you think, the answer to my loneliness... And the answer to my lack of intimacy is to find this ideal person who's going to fulfill all my needs. Can I tell you, if you're looking for such a person, he or she does not exist. Only one person can satisfy the deepest desires of your heart and it is God himself and his son makes a way by which this is possible. Only when that is in perspective will your other relationships, whether you're married or not, fall into perspective. Only when your lives orbit around God as the centre will your need for intimacy be fulfilled ultimately. The writer of Proverbs again comments and says, Let your eyes look straight ahead, fix your gaze directly before you, make level paths for your feet and take only ways that are firm. Do not swerve to the right or the left, Keep your foot from evil. Good advice. What a pity that the man who wrote it, King Solomon, failed to live up to what he preached. Didn't practice what he preached. His whole kingdom ended in disaster in this area of sexual immorality. It destroyed him spiritually. It destroyed the nation of Israel. J. John again concludes his chapter on this seventh commandment. The only way to resist temptation to infidelity is to root our single life or marriage in the rich soil of God's confirming love. And whoever you are this morning, married or single, or divorced, separated, mature Christian, new disciple, don't think you are invulnerable in this area. 
referring back to the history of Israel and actually dealing with the subject. Some of you are going to go out from here this morning and saying that was too blunt and he shouldn't be talking like that. Can I simply say, you look through the Bible and see how often the Bible deals with this issue because it's so fundamental and important. Because if we're made for intimacy with God, then the closest thing to that is human intimacy and that's why we run into problems. But the Apostle Paul, writing to the Christians in Corinth, warns them, he, he quotes this story of the Israelites committing adultery on their way from Egypt to Canaan. And he says, there is no room for complacency. So if you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. 1 Corinthians 10 verse 12. But he goes further and he also says, there is no room for fatalism. How many people say today, it just happened and I couldn't help myself? Here's a verse, again from 1 Corinthians 10 verse 13 when you think you're facing an irresistible sin. No temptation has seized you, except that which is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear, but when you are tempted, he will provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. In other words, he's saying, you can never say, I sinned and there was no, nothing I could do about it. Because if you are a Christian, God always provides an exit door. The question is whether you head for the exit sign. That's what Joseph did. There he is in the house alone with this woman. And she's all over him. Come to bed with me. He probably felt a fool. He just bolted and she grabbed his cloak. That was the exit sign. Make sure you take it. Well, I've almost finished. Began with the true story of a woman said to a man, come to bed with me. So you don't think I'm getting on about women? Let me tell you another story, also in the Bible, about a man who said to a woman, come to bed with me. Which had a sad and different outcome. Come to bed with me, he said. It was an offer she couldn't refuse. After all, he was the king and she was just a woman. A very beautiful woman. He'd seen bathing as he looked out from the palace balcony one evening. But he discovered she was also a wife. The wife of a serving army officer fighting on the battlefront. Leaving his wife at home. Nonetheless, knowing this, this king committed adultery. It was only a one night stand. But it led to an unwanted pregnancy. Deception, conspiracy, finally murder. Yet nothing that a king couldn't cover up because who's above a king? No one except God who saw and knew. And for some time it looked as though he'd got away with murder and adultery. But God saw and God sent a prophet to confront him with his sin and to speak God's word and exposed by the word of the Lord, the prophet said to him, you are the man. You're guilty. At this point, King David could have done several things. He could have said, you must have made a mistake. He could have said, off with his head. But in fact, he said, I'm guilty. I have sinned against the Lord, he said. And what was the outcome of this story? 
Well, first of all, he found forgiveness. The prophet immediately said, the Lord has taken away your sin. Wow, you say. Easy peasy. Just confess and God forgives you. Yes, he does. But he reaped the consequences of his actions. His baby son died. Another son humiliated him publicly. His kingdom was torn apart. And the effects on the nation of Israel and on the family of King David, the man after God's own heart, went down the generations with untold consequences. The New Testament reminds us, do not be deceived, God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Far better if David, like Joseph, had said, whatever the cost, how could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? How better for you and for me to listen to and obey God's command. The better way is, you shall not commit adultery. Let's pray together.